From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we speak with pastor and author Bromley McLennigan. She draws from her experience as a university chaplain, as a pastor who does pastoral counseling to married couples, from her own life experience, and from the surveys she's done of people who are active in relationships to talk to us about her new book, Good Christian Sex. Stay tuned. Hey friends, before we begin the show, I wanted to take a moment and talk to you about a new podcast from my friend, the Reverend Kat Banakas. It's called The Holy, Holy Podcast, and each episode, Kat takes this big question like dying or careers or how to be single and Christian, and she talks about it with experts from across the nation, sometimes from across the world, and then at the end of the show, she puts it to a three-person panel that includes a representative of the Muslim faith, the Jewish faith, and the Christian faith. It's always a fantastic conversation. I always learn something when I listen to it, and I just love the fact that she's doing it. So I hope that you'll take a look for the Holy Holy Podcast. You can find it through iTunes. You can find it at holyholypodcast.com. You can also find it through our website, csec.org. So that's the Holy Holy Podcast with the Reverend Kat Banakas. Give it a listen. I know, I know you're going to love it. Thanks. Okay, here we go with the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Bromley McLennigan. She's associate pastor at Union Church in Hinsdale, Illinois. That's a suburb of Chicago. And she's the co-author of Hopes and Fears, Everyday Theology for New Parents and Other Tired and Anxious People. And she writes essays and articles for The Christian Century, for Ministry Matters, for Fidelia Sisters and Circuit Writer and Criterion, and the website of the United Methodist Church. She has a new book, and we're going to be discussing it today. It's called Good Christian Sex, Why Chastity Isn't the Only Option and Other Things the Bible Says About Sex. And as you have probably guessed, we're going to be dealing with some mature subject matters today. So if there are young listeners, please be advised. We will be acknowledging the fact that sex exists and that human beings do it. Reverend Bomley McClanagan, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. Well, I must say I really enjoyed the book. I learned a lot from it, and I'm looking forward to getting into the conversation about it. But to start that out, I really wanted to ask you right off the top, why did you decide to write a book like this? What was the need that you saw that you were trying to fill? I've been in pastoral ministry for over 10 years now, and and just from the start, there's really not anything quite like this right now. So I was excited to be the one to provide it, because I've looked for resources. I do a lot of premarital counseling, and I work with teenagers sometimes, and I used to work at the University of Chicago with college and graduate students, and and there's really just not anything quite like this, which is, I hope, a sort of introduction to theological ethics and exploring the Bible in a kind of different way than people are used to, but 
in a way that you would, you know, pick it up and actually be interested to read it. Not everybody's just dying to read theological ethics. As a young adult, and, uh, you know, I dated in high school and college and, and had some really wonderful relationships, too, and grew up in the church and, and as a Christian, and there was not, from my sort of mainline liberal Protestant tradition, there was not a whole lot of guidance around what made, what what Christianity might offer in terms of resources and thinking through what might make a relationship holy or loving or just. We didn't really talk about that. The primary issue of around sexuality was about around um, LGBTQ inclusion, which is important, but was always addressed as sort of a justice issue. Um, and then in the more conservative side of the church, as I was coming of age, the conversation was uh, was really moving more conservative in terms of we were seeing the rise of true love waits and, and the publication of I Kiss Dating Goodbye and, and this whole sort of total abstinence movement. And when I, by the time in seminary I kind of caught wind of that, I, you know, that ship had already sailed for me, so, I mean, that was not going to be the way I was going to approach things. But there didn't really seem to be something useful for, like, you know, your average mainline young adult. So that was, those. so this book has sort of been, you know, developing for a long time, and now I finally have the chance to kind of write it. And and so this is both an outgrowth of your own personal experience, but you also did some research around this subject. And I, I wonder if you might tell our listeners a little bit about how you researched this book and the ways in which you approached trying to figure out how you would talk about not just your experience, but other people's experience. Yeah. So two things. One, I actually did my graduate work. I looked at Christian sex ed curricula, and, and I did a public policy degree, too, so, so I looked then also at the ways that at adolescents sort of generally and, and what affects teenage sexual practice. So, so I had some sort of broad theological and sociological questions and data that I kind of had in the back of my mind. But definitely I was I wanted to know if the questions that I had and, and the experiences that I had and the conclusions that I'd sort of drawn from those experiences and if they kind of matched up with where other people were, you know, am I totally an anomaly? Am I weird here? And so I, and I also wanted to limit the number of uh, personal stories I had to tell. So, because my grandparents are yet living and, you know, I didn't want to embarrass myself too fully. But so I, I put out a survey um, I just used a, a Google form, and, and it was an open survey. I sent it out to a number of clergy colleagues and other Facebook friends and asked people to share it. I had responses from college students and another young adult. Some, some older adults answered as well. And I asked all kinds of questions around gender identity and sexual identity. I asked about first romantic feelings and first sexual experiences. I asked about what people thought the proper relationship between faith and sex was. I asked about experiences of infidelity or abuse. I got 350 responses, roughly. And, and it's funny, I'm not, 
you know, I, I took statistics in grad school, but I'm, like, not great at it. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely in pastoral ministry. So I looked at the responses really as people's stories, and I didn't make much of an attempt to, to quantify their responses. That might be another book project someday. But, but it was really wonderful to, to receive everybody's responses. It was a tremendous gift the way that people shared their stories with me, and I felt really grateful for that. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with Reverend Bromley McClennigan, and we're talking about her new book, Good Christian Sex, Why Chastity Isn't the Only Option and Other Things the Bible Says About Sex. Well, as a way of getting into the discussion, it's clear from reading the early chapters of the book that probably if you're a heterosexual, you have a certain idea of what sex and sexuality is. But you kind of troubled those waters and said sex as a, as a defined term is actually much more a moving target than we may assume. And I wonder if we could start there. So when we use this term sex and sexuality, what do we assume that that means in sort of a normative way? And what should we be thinking about? I think I like to talk a lot more about sexuality than sex itself, because I think that sexuality is, is a part of our identity. It's the part of, you know, who we are that relates to sexual pleasure, but also sexual intimacy and sexual love. And it's not necessarily about, it's about sort of the erotic and desire and desire to be seen and known and appreciated and to give that assurance and pleasure to someone else. So sexuality is about all of those things, whereas when we talk about sex, we're, we're often talking about particular acts, and then we're deciding which of those acts is appropriate for which people at which moment in time. And, and so part of how I wanted to talk about sexuality is to really look at that fulsome picture about how this relates to who we are. But, but when we talk about sex, folks are often talking about heterosexual intercourse, right, the kind that makes babies and the only kind anybody has. But, of course, that's not true at all. Heterosexuals certainly have all kinds of different sex. There's oral sex. There's anal sex. There's, you know, there's intercourse in the way that we, we tend to imagine, you know, when we talk about sex. But then other folks, queer women, may not ever have heterosexual intercourse. And gay men may not either. So there are... So when we talk about sex... That, that sort of limits our conversation. Part of the other reason that I wanted to move away from that is because we often talk about virginity as sort of, you know, a line in the sand that, and before, virginity is something that is a marker of purity and specialness or innocence or whatever, and if, and if virginity is lost before marriage, then something dreadful has happened. And that, I think virginity is also sort of a moving target rightly i don't know i mean i my experience is that some things can be hugely intimate even if you know even with your clothes on you know and the lights on in the middle of the day no but um you know that a kiss can be just as erotic as as anything else and so so part of talking about sexuality we also have to be talking about vulnerability and intimacy and, and the risk of reaching out to someone more than just assuming that specific acts feel like and mean certain things to all people. 
Does that make sense? It does. And I'm, I'm going to assume that most of our listeners are familiar with Western culture in the last 2,000 years. But just, <laughs> That seems fair, right? Just, just in case they're not, if we were to sort of set a baseline for this conversation, the Christian expectations about sex through the centuries up until, say, the middle of the 20th century were largely what? Well, in my denomination, which considers itself vaguely related to other Christian traditions. We always talk about celibacy and singleness and fidelity in marriage. So if you're a single person, that you are celibate, and that if you are married and having sex, that it is faithful to your partner. Everyone should probably go read Sarah Mosliner's book, Virgin Nation. I mean, it's an academic text, so you know, don't take it to the beach, but, but it's about American adolescence and virginity and sort of how that became a new focus of attention in the 20th century and how it related to the changing face of Christianity and the rise of first fundamentalism and then evangelicalism. So, so that's a really interesting study. But what's interesting to me is that, that we saw a shift in emphasis where it wasn't just that you couldn't have sex before marriage rightly or in a holy way, but you couldn't do anything. Now we see sort of trends that became less about, ostensibly they were less about the act of sex, but feeling any sort of desire or seeking any sort of sexual pleasure, even that from a kiss, any sort of intimacy, you know, petting outside your clothes, anything outside of marriage was sinful and wrong. And that move has been hugely problematic, actually, I think, to a lot of people who were raised and in the culture that emphasized it. There's an expectation, a societal expectation, about what proper chaste behavior would be. And then we have the actuality. You mentioned earlier the sort of sociological side, what people actually do. Am I hearing you correctly? Those two things oftentimes don't match up. Oh, yes, indeed. I mean, the vast swaths of Americans have had some sort of sex by the age of 19 and then certainly by 21. And the average age of marriage for women, right, is something like 26 and men is 28. I mean, it's mid to late 20s. So people are having sex when they're not married, right? We know that. And not to suggest that everything that happens is okay, I don't want to be the pastor that's like, well, it is, so I guess we just deal with it. But I do think that when we suggest that all sex outside of marriage is necessarily wrong, we actually we lose a hearing with people, which is unfortunate because I think there is actually quite a bit of you know sexual sin in the world, and we're just kind of barking up the wrong tree if we're emphasizing total abstinence. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Reverend Bromley McLennigan, and she's the author of the new book, Good Christian Sex, Why Chastity Isn't the Only Option and Other Things the Bible Says About Sex. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, David Dalt here. You may be wondering why we take time out of the podcast to have these little minute-long breaks with the crazy music underneath. The answer is simple. We're trying to design the podcast so that it pays for itself. And so these are places where someday we will have some advertising. Now, let's say that you have been interested in getting into some sort of podcasting advertising platform where you want to promote your product. 
we would be a wonderful mid-market solution for you, uh, particularly if you want to reach an educated audience that really, really likes stuff about religion. Uh, so that's what this is here for. So if you would like to learn more about advertising with us, you can go to advertisecast.com or you can contact us through our website. We would love, love, love to work with you. Thank you always for listening. Okay, back to the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Reverend Bromley McClenaghan. She's the author of the book Good Christian Sex, Why Chastity Isn't the Only Option, and Other Things the Bible Says About Sex. As you may have guessed from the title, we're dealing with mature subject matters in this episode, so if you have young listeners, please be advised. Well, about midway through the book, you introduce a concept that I want to make sure that we talk about, and it's the notion of consent, and in particular, the notion of affirmative consent. And so if you could, let's take those in sort of two passes. So first of all, when we talk about consent, what are we talking about? And then when we talk about affirmative consent, what does that mean as a step beyond mere consent? So consent, I think, is – I was really – wanting to make sure that consent was addressed as a topic in the book, because it's not something that Christian writers often do emphasize. There's a woman, Springer Mott, I believe is her last name, and she wrote a wonderful article in in Christianity Today in the, in the women's blog, Hermeneutics, a number of months ago now, about, you know, how Christians think that they don't have to talk about consent, because if you're married, then, you know, well... I mean, that's the only time you would be having sex, and you certainly don't need consent in marriage. And she's like, well, now, wait a minute. <laughs> we, we, in fact, do need to talk about consent. So consent is sort of granting permission to do whatever is about to be done. And I do think that there are assumptions about who's granting the consent, you know, that, that it is definitely going to be the male pursuer who is asking permission of the female you know, partner, whether or not he can, you know, do this act unto her now. The first sort of iteration of cultural conversation around consent was that it was her responsibility to say no. No, you may not proceed. Uh, We've come to the point where, you know, folks, if you say no means no, then, okay, then we sort of know what that means. But in recent years, particularly, I think, with the rise of, college hookup culture where there is so much alcohol consumption also accompanying sexual relationships that you actually found girls who couldn't say no because they were incapacitated. Now, you would think that people would know that if someone couldn't say anything to you, you probably shouldn't proceed in having any sort of sexual relationship with them. But apparently, we can't assume that people understand that. And so we need to we sort of further drawn out this concept of consent and talked about affirmative consent, which is not just no means no, but in fact, can I do this? Yes, please do. <laughs> you know, um, So the sense of, of wanting to know that it is not just not prohibited, but, but also deeply welcomed. So affirmative consent would be you actually need someone saying, yes, please proceed, as opposed to simply the absence of, of any kind of response at all. And it, that's the distinction. Exactly. Right. That it's not just a no, but it's a no, don't, but a yes, please. There is presumed to be this great gray area where people don't know whether or not their actions are wanted. And I don't quite understand how that works. I mean, I feel like you should 
communicate with your partner. And if it seems that your partner is uncomfortable or doesn't want you to proceed, you should just stop. But but indeed, the, the distinction is to help, I think, in those situations. Well, and this begins to tie into another sort of major theme within the book, and that is Christianity traditionally has used the language of sin to speak about sexuality. And you offer your own set of definitions for how uh, we should understand sexual sin. And you categorize sexual sin as the lack of mutuality, reciprocity, and love in an intimate act. And that seems to overlap with kind of what you're saying here. So if you if you are proceeding without affirmative consent, you're not engaging in an act that has mutuality, reciprocity, and love. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes, definitely. One of the women who responded to my survey is a Christian in her 30s. She's single. And she reported that she grew up with the kind of understanding of sexual sin that, you know, anything outside of marriage was, was necessarily sinful, but now, particularly as she's remained single into her 30s, and marriage is not necessarily on the cards, and yet she is a sexual being and seeks intimacy, both emotionally and physically, she has sort of had to come up with a new ethic. And she wonders, you know, if the love of God, self, and neighbor that she uses as the norm in her, in the rest of her Christian practice, she asks questions about whether or not she should treat a friend this way or whether or not she should purchase things from a given company, you know, that these are questions about love of God, self, and neighbor, whether or not those same norms and questions can apply to her sex life. And she's kind of like, you know, I think so. And I lift her up because I want to affirm that. I really do think that the, the greatest commandment is to love God with all you can and to love your neighbor as yourself. That has to be the root of our sexual ethics. And and Margaret Farley, who I quote and get some of that language from, who wrote her wonderful book of sexual ethics, Just Love, Just Love, talks about the relationship of those norms, mutuality, reciprocity, and love to that commandment as well. Well, and so I want to begin to kind of push back against these definitions in a couple of ways. And so first of all, it looks like you're working backwards from kind of the actual practices of people towards an ethic. And so my my first question would be, what is distinctly Christian about the sexuality that you are that you are characterizing here? How is this not just what people are doing with better descriptions and more polite kind of language? If what we're doing is simply saying, well, people are already doing this and we see that it has some level of mutuality and respect and love involved and so that must make it okay, what is different? Why, why would you need to have – why would you need to be Christian in that particular context? Sure. I mean to some extent – I was interviewed somewhere else. One of the interviewers asked, well, would an atheist find any value in your book? Indeed, the golden rule such as it is appears in all kinds of different cultures and texts. The senior pastor at the church here gave a sermon on that recently, and he read off different examples of it in a variety of different places, from the Bible to the Quran to Confucius to you know everybody. To some extent, the sort of treating others as you would like to be treated is a baseline practice for humanity, I think, right? <laughs> Certainly, people who are not Christian should also be concerned with consent. But I do think that asking questions about what makes for a good life and what are we here 
to do and be, and how can we be in relationship with God and live in the world in a way that is life-giving and fulfilling and and demonstrates grace? I think those are sort of deeply theological questions. I I start with people's experience, and particularly with my own, for some extent, as as an authority. I mean, uh, as a a means of authority. People don't necessarily care what the Bible says about their sexuality, right? It is not the sort of authority that people can take as given anymore. I mean, they could, but they don't. And so to simply say, as plenty of Christians have done over the years, well, the Bible says so, so you have to do it this way. That is easily ignored by people who just don't care that much about what the Bible says for their lives. So by entering in from, here are questions that arise out of experience. Can we explore what the Bible or the theological tradition says about what a good life looks like or what living in a body is all about or how we rightly pursue and also not pursue our desires. I think that those are profoundly important questions for Christians. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Reverend Bromley McLennigan, and we're talking about her new book, Good Christian Sex. And just a note to parents, we're dealing with mature subject matter that acknowledges that human beings engage in sexual activity. So please be, please be aware. So to follow on this notion of sexual sin as the lack of mutuality, reciprocity, and love, it's clear in the book that you have a very open and affirming approach to a variety of human sexual practices. So you could see mutuality, reciprocity, and love in a committed uh, same-sex partnership in the same way that you could in a committed heterosexual partnership. Am I hearing that correctly? Oh, yes, definitely. Okay. So let's begin to push that and sort of ask then, So there are types of sexual behavior that begin to blur the boundaries of what we might call mutuality, reciprocity, and love. And in particular, I'm thinking about BDSM, so bondage, domination, and sadomasochistic relationships. Mm -hmm. So is it possible to speak of a BDSM sexual relationship that somehow fits your criterion of mutuality, reciprocity, and love? Would you be comfortable even extending the rubric to that type of interaction? I know little about the BDSM community, so I do not speak as an expert on that. I will say that what I do know is that in theory and Often in practice, the BDSM community is even more committed to obtaining consent and being aware of sort of the rules of the game and the boundaries of the interaction than folks casually hooking up. And it's interesting. I mean, it's kind of interesting to think about because in some ways it takes the playfulness of sexuality and sexual interaction, the the sense of risking yourself and being vulnerable, but then experiencing joy or pleasure. You know, there's there's, there's some playfulness uh, that in a relationship that you can trust and that you feel safe in, and and so in some ways it's just sort of it's another form of a game. And so I suppose if you had your safe words and you had your consent and you had everybody was playing the game.
So let me then sort of ask the question from a different approach. How would you characterize relationships that would be beyond the pale? Like what would a not okay sexual interaction look like in the Christian context as you've defined it? Well, certainly anything with folks who can't give consent. Obviously, children or when there's a deep power imbalance between a a teacher or a student or, God, a pastor and a parishioner. You know, I mean, like, those things are clearly inappropriate and sinful, I would say. I think that relationships, when someone is vulnerable for a season or because of their particular position in a given moment, you know, I mean, um, folks having a sexual relationship with someone who can't, who is overly intoxicated or can't respond, those are inappropriate. And then I think things in which a relationship can't be mutually renegotiated. I mean, intimacy requires two, I mean, true intimacy, right, requires not just sexual but general, requires two agents in relationship who can express, who both are selves in and of themselves, you know, whole on their own, but that also who can negotiate what happens between them. So if for whatever reason a given participant is, is sort of not a full self, then, then I think that's probably problematic. Now, if I'm, if I'm tracking correctly in the way that, th- that you're answering these questions, uh, there's the problem would be, or the sin would, would always be contextual and relational. The sin is never inherent to a particular type of act itself. So, for example, in Christian tradition, sometimes you'll have self-stimulation, masturbation, as a forbidden act. Mm-hmm. You would not lay sin on a particular type of action. Instead, you'd say, if that action is happening within a particular type of relationship, it can be sinful. Am I hearing the distinction correctly? I think so. I mean, certainly I don't think masturbation is no matter how you do it. But although I think that pornography can be sinful, I mean, a lot of my survey participants had objections to pornography. And I was pleased, though, that it wasn't necessarily a sense of how, because anything related to sex is obviously necessarily wrong, but rather because pornography can often be made unethically. And I have trouble thinking about sex work as something that, not that people who are sex workers are particularly sinful, that that industry and the people who use it are, that's probably beyond the pale. And by sex, um, by sex work, you would mean prostitution, phone sex work, posing for pictures, or that broadly defined, or simply prostitution? Right. Yeah, well, mostly prostitution, but I think the other things, too. Um, I think that, I mean, because those are, again, about, but what makes them sinful I think is sort of a complicated mix about, you know, are people vulnerable and does this value their full humanity or does this take advantage of them in ways that continue on even after the act is done. So those are some of the... So again, it's not exactly the act itself, you know? I mean, like, if my husband wanted to take nude pictures of me because that was something special in our relationship, like, I don't think that that is bothersome to God. But, like... But if somebody wanted to pay, I mean, nobody wants to pay me for that. But, like, you know, but I, you know what I mean? That, like, if, but, so I don't think the act of taking pictures is morally problematic. It's who and why and how and to what end and, you know, all of those sorts of questions. If you were to take a survey of what Catholics actually do in America, Catholics are not following the catechism. 
So I, I want to I want put that on the table and, and admit that. But the notion somehow that asking people to either contain themselves until they're married and save that solely for marriage, I understood you as saying that that was an, sort of an unrealistic or an unfair expectation to ask of people to do. Did I did I mishear that? Well, again, my my interest or my emphasis, I guess, is not exactly on acts. You know, I think that, um, and so I think that people have to be able to exercise all the parts of themselves, regardless of whether or not they're married, right? And so if sexuality is a part of ourselves, then how do we properly exercise our sexuality, regardless of our state? And, and chastity is about that, right? It's about sort of restraint with an eye toward what is good and holy. So people who are married are still supposed to be chaste within their marriages, right? They're supposed to do what is right and befitting the relationship in which they find themselves. But I do, you know, I'm, I'm concerned for those who are single and concerned about the idea that we can just shut off this vital you know, part of ourselves and, and shut it up until the day that, that we, you know, marry. Because um, that doesn't seem quite right. I mean, if people want to not have sexual intercourse until they are married to their heterosexual partner, you know, more power to them. But I think that, and certainly they are within historical and churchly tradition, right? I mean, that makes perfectly good sense. But I think that we have seen, and, and particularly following the evangelical purity culture, where you have, I mean, now a whole like generation and a half of folks who came of age with that, and they either sort of rush into marriage without exactly the gifts or wisdom or awareness because they need to express their sexual selves and they want to do it the right and holy way, even if... In fact, they are not ready to be married or their partner is, you know, the relationship is not ready for the, the permanence and the commitment of marriage. Um, or you have folks who remain single and try to restrain their sexuality in such a way that it becomes oppressive for them. You know, they then have trouble finding a partner or they suffer a great deal of shame. I think that... God did not create us to suffer. I don't think God wants us to suffer. I think we do often, um, but that that uh, but we have to think long and hard about, you know, what is it that church teaching is doing? Is it is it here to actually help people live into the fullness of their lives, or is it or is it doing harm? And so I think things are a little. I think they're just a little more complicated than than our church teachings sometimes admitted. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Reverend Bromley McLennigan. She's the author of Good Christian Sex, Why Chastity Isn't the Only Option and Other Things the Bible Says About Sex. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, Dave Dalt here. Earlier in the show, I talked about podcast monetization through advertising. But let's say that you, as a listener, don't have anything to sell right now, but you still want to support Things Not Seen. We can make that happen. 
Here's how it works. You could go to our thingsnotseenradio.com website or csec.org and make a one-time donation. It would be tax-deductible, and that would be wonderful. But you can also support us on an ongoing basis through a platform called Patreon. Now, here's how that works. You set the amount, $1, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever an episode of Things Not Seen is worth to you. And every time that we release a new episode, you would be charged on your credit card for that amount. You set it. You set how long you do it. It's completely up to you, but it really would help us. So please go to our website or go to patreon.com and set it up. And we thank you always for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Reverend Bromley McLennigan about her new book, Good Christian Sex, Why Chastity Isn't the Only Option and Other Things the Bible Says About Sex. Now, obviously, from the title, we're talking about mature subject matter. So if you're just tuning in and you have young children, please be advised. For several years, Reverend McLennigan was the Associate for Congregational Life at the University of Chicago's Rockefeller Memorial Chapel, and she was the co-author with Lee Hull Moses of Hopes and Fears, Everyday Theology for New Parents and Other Tired, Anxious People. In July of 2015, Reverend McLennigan joined the staff of the Union Church of Hinsdale, United Churches of Christ in Hinsdale, Illinois, as their associate pastor for ministry with families. As she was researching and writing the book, Good Christian Sex, she utilized Facebook and other social media to survey people about their experiences with relationships and with love and with their own sexuality. She also drew upon her own experience with the permission of her past partners. Her frank approach led me to ask a personal question of my own. I am a conservative Catholic, and I'll just lay that on the table. And so my tradition has very strong pronouncements about how sexuality is supposed to be expressed. And so if we look at the catechism, and I can't quote this from memory certainly, but the proper expression is in a heterosexual context between one man and one woman in a matrimonial relationship. In other words, not just a wedding vow relationship, but a wedding vow that has been given in a certain context that is considered sacramental. And that's the only proper expression of sexuality. People like Margaret Farley, who has been criticized by the Catholic Church, certainly, they push back against that. And and you follow Margaret Farley in pushing back against that notion that it's either within matrimony or it's celibacy. You go as far as to say that celibacy itself is unfair. And I wonder if you would expand upon your thinking about that. I'm not... Yeah, it's unfair to who? I'm sorry. Well, and, and so on, let me let me sort of let me back up for just a second. So, so having said that about conservative Catholicism, I also want to readily admit that if you were to take a survey of what Catholics actually do in America, Catholics are not following the Catechism. So, I, I want to I want put that on the table and, and admit that. But the notion somehow that asking people to either contain themselves until they're married and save that solely for marriage, I understood you as saying that that was sort of an unrealistic or an unfair expectation to ask of people to do. Did I mishear that? Well, again, my my interest or my emphasis, I guess, is not exactly on acts. You know, I think that, and so I think that people have to be able to exercise all the parts of themselves regardless of whether or not they're married. 
right? And so if sexuality is a part of ourselves, then how do we properly exercise our sexuality, regardless of our state, you know? And, and celibacy is, is sort of about that, right? Chastity is, or not celibacy, but chastity is about that, right? It's about sort of restraint with an eye toward what is good and holy, you know? Um, so, so people who are married are still supposed to be chaste within their marriages, right? They're supposed to do what is right and befitting the relationship in which they find themselves. But I do, you know, I'm, I'm concerned for those who are single and concerned about the idea that we can just shut off this vital life, you know, part of ourselves, this vital sort of inspiring sometimes part of ourselves and, and, and shut it up until the day that, that we, you know, marry. Because that doesn't seem quite right. I mean, if people want to not have sexual intercourse until they are married to their heterosexual partner, you know, more power to them. But, but I think that, and certainly they are within historical and churchly tradition, right? I mean, that makes perfectly good sense. But, but I think that we have seen, and, and particularly following the evangelical purity culture where you have, I mean, now a whole like generation and a half of folks who came of age with that, and they either sort of rush into marriage without exactly the gifts or wisdom or awareness because they need to express their sexual selves and they want to do it the right and holy way, even if, in fact, they are not ready to be married or their partner is you know, the relationship is not ready for the, the permanence and the commitment of marriage. Um, or you have folks who remain single and try to restrain their sexuality in such a way that it becomes oppressive for them and that, you know, they then have trouble finding a partner or they suffer a great deal of shame or that, you know, I mean, there's a whole... I mean, I think that God did not create us to suffer. I don't think God wants us to suffer. I think we do often, but we have to think long and hard about, you know, what is it that church teaching is doing? Is it, is it here to actually help people live into the fullness of their lives, or is, it, or is it doing harm? And so I think things are a little, I think they're just a little more complicated than, than our church teachings sometimes admitted. Well, in, in light of that answer, from my tradition, there are people who discern a calling to a consecrated life, either to the priesthood or to, to the sisterhood of a, of a particular congregation of the faithful, like, like nuns and, and monks. And how do you understand people who discern that sort of call within your sense that this is a central part of being human? Well, I think that, I mean, from, you know, I don't, I mean, Margaret Farley is probably chaste, right? I mean, she's a part of an order. So clearly there are ways in which people who are called to those lives can live into them in healthy and holy ways, right? I mean, you have the support of a community. You have all kinds of resources, um, and there are ways for people to live fully within that. I mean, I think that 
again, having being a sexual person does not necessarily mean that you have to have sexual relationships or that you have to engage in particular sexual acts. But I think that we run into trouble when we suggest that that people need to deny that they are sexual beings or ignore it or feel shamed for sexual feelings or thoughts even, you know. I think that's that's problematic. And, th- and that denies our embodiment, right? So I think that that's... I, <laughs> I'm trying to think of how to say something theological about, like, wet dreams, right? Like, like guys shouldn't feel... Like, your poor adolescent, you know, 13-year-old boy should not feel like he has sinned because, like, he has had... And I don't quite know how, like, nocturnal emissions are, like, categorized in the Catholic Church. But there are parts of our sexuality that are just part of being human, right? And so if people are called into communities where they do not engage in sexual practice because it allows them to live into the fullness of something else, some other calling, then that's a legitimate and wonderful choice. My concern is that there are those who are not called to celibacy, but who are yet not married. And so should they remain, should they have to feel the burden of, unchosen celibacy for years simply because they did not find, you know, someone with whom to build a life in that way. Does that make sense? I think that that's, and, and again, it's those sort of situations that we need to to reflect on. I, I, you know, I, I am, as someone who, like, you know, who's interested in theology, I think that we have to care about the sort of extreme case, that that is something that can challenge the rule. So, This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Reverend Bromley McLennigan about her new book, Good Christian Sex, Why Chastity Isn't the Only Option and Other Things the Bible Says About Sex. I'm speaking to you today not just as a Catholic, but also as the father of young children. And I know that you have children yourself as well. And so I want to pivot for the last part of our conversation to ask, in light of the notions of the necessity of affirmative consent, in light of the notions that that the Christian identity with regard to sex is definitely changing in the 21st century and has been changing for a number of decades, how should we raise our children? How should we think about teaching them responsible ways to exercise their lives, hopefully as Christians, within this new and changing landscape? I think part of it is teaching them the Christian story and being explicit about the things that we believe. I mean, we have conversations all the time about, you know, well, in our family, we do this. And not to necessarily imply that there's anything wrong with anybody else's way of doing things. But in our family, this is kind of what we believe is good. And we do that around, like, why you're not going to have a cell phone before middle school. You know, I mean, uh, that, that sort of, in our family, we, you know, we do this. I grew up, again, like, I'm a preacher's kid. I grew up going to church all the time. And I still think that my sexual ethics was more deeply informed by, you know, whatever teen drama was on TV than by the church. And so I knew a lot of stuff about 
Christian theology at a fairly young age, and, and yet I wasn't making the connection. So I do think that we have to be kind of explicit about about what the connections are between what we think about who God is and what God calls us to do and the way that we form relationships with other people. Our kids are at the age now where they've, they're starting to know a little bit about what sex is and how it how it works, at least for making babies. But but they knew. I'm trying to think of how it came up. But they they were made aware of someone, of a couple who wasn't married but was having a baby, and they were not sure how that worked. And and so we said, you know, it is possible to have a baby with someone you are not married to. We do tend to think it is better when those things go together <laughs> in our family, you know, and we hope that, you know, whatever. But, and so, so I think, you know, I think we try to have, like, age-appropriate conversations when they present themselves that, that don't deny what exists in the world, but also, you know, tries to be explicit about what it is that we hope for, you know. I do think that we have to be really sure that we don't fall back on tropes that are untrue. I quoted also Christine Gudorf, who is another Roman Catholic theologian and ethicist. Uh, and she, her book is called Body, Sex, Pleasure. And she talks about, you know, she talks about how vast swaths of people masturbate, right? Like, uh, particularly in adolescence. And one, how that can be like a good thing for adults. Uh, pardon, for women in particular, because it helps them to know their bodies so that then when they do come around to having partners, they can express what it is that they want, which leads their sex lives to be better because they are more pleasurable. So, so you know, I always want to be really wary about, there are a number of Christian sex ed curricula that when they talk about masturbation, you know, they're just like, well, you know, if you start, you're definitely going to become someone who does it all the time, and it's going to be weird, and you're probably going to be, you know, rejected and shamed and just down the road to all manner of broken relationships. And, you know, and, and so that's like a lie, you know, and and I think that not only is it is it just not good to lie to people, but but also... It, it's very short-sighted because the first time that, so the first time your kids experience sexual pleasure and there's no negative consequence or the immediate negative consequence that you promised them would happen didn't happen, then, then they don't believe you anymore. You've sort of lost your credibility. So I think that we do have to be really honest with, with folks. I mean, the same, too, goes with uh, unprotected sex. You know, the odds... You know, you don't want to play the odds with pregnancy, right? I mean, if you don't want to get pregnant, you should practice safer sex. And so, yet if we tell kids that every time they have unprotected sex, they will necessarily get pregnant. If they happen to get lucky, not, you know, you know if they get lucky and have unprotected sex and don't get pregnant, then, then they will have thought that we are liars which is unfortunate because then they won't use contraception in the future. And so you may end up with unwanted pregnancies, which I think is something everybody, liberals and conservatives, want to avoid. Well, and, and so how would you characterize the reaction to the book? It's It's been out for a little while now, just uh, I think a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you gotten pushback? Has it been negative? Has it been positive? What has the response been? 
From folks who read it, it has been overwhelmingly positive. I mean, I I have I've heard from a number of folks who grew up in that in that more sort of purity culture uh, context, who have felt like this was the the theological breath of fresh air that they needed, and and they're grateful for it. I've heard from clergy who are looking forward to using it as a resource with folks in their care as as a way to think about you know, for for people in their congregations, particularly young adults, to think about their faith lives in relationship to their sex lives as opposed to something totally separate. So I've, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had really positive feedback from those who have actually read it. Now, from those who have seen the title and immediately assumed that I am, you know, leading people down the proposed path, they're not real happy about it. But, but you know, you can't please everybody in this life. I'm also an ordained clergywoman, so there's going to be a segment of Christianity that's not super happy about that either. So, well, and is this the beginning of a of a series of projects? Will you write about this subject again, or are you looking ahead to a different sort of writing project in the future? I don't know. I just don't know. One of the things that I think is actually really important uh, that that I am. Uh, really interested in is, is looking at in privilege and the language of blessing. So that that might be my next project. But, but you know, there's always, and, and I don't know what else I might say about sexuality at this moment. So maybe farther down the road. I've also written about parenting before when my kids were real little and now they're a little older. So there might be something more to think about in that area too. We've been speaking today with Reverend Bromley McLennigan. She's associate pastor at the Union Church in Hinsdale, Illinois. That's a suburb of Chicago. She's the co-author of Hopes and Fears, Everyday Theology for New Parents and Other Tired, Anxious People. And her essays and articles have been published in The Christian Century, Ministry Matters, Fidelia Sisters, Circuit Rider, Criterion, and the website of the United Methodist Church. We've been talking about her new book, Good Christian Sex, Why Chastity Isn't the Only Option, and Other Things the Bible Says About Sex. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media LLC with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron and Colleen Pellisier did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash Things Not Seen Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.